Hello, hello, I'm Chris. And I am Preston. And welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Readin' Theory. This week we are going to be talking about This Is Not a Pipe by Michel Foucault. Mm. And uh, first I feel like it's important to just talk a tiny bit about, you know, what he's, what he's arguing. First, he's given some great descriptions of the Magritte painting, This oh, Is Not a he's, Pipe. He's such a fanboy in this. Oh yeah. He fan, he's... He, Foucault definitely stands Magritte. Well, yeah. <laughs> As do I, actually. Yeah, th- I mean, he sold me on on Magritte for sure after reading this. I definitely find them to be drastically more interesting. I mean, yeah. I'm really inexperienced in a lot of that stuff. That's kind of been just like reading this stuff, a uh, newer endeavor of exploration. But, uh... Yeah. I really enjoyed these paintings actually they were they were great and i and foucault is very nice about oh, interpreting the them he and dove into them. yeah great so the first thing he does is and also we recommend anyone listening to first go and look at both versions of the painting the one the very simple one and the other with the second pipe they're very easy to find if you just google them on the internet but he's not just interpreting a painting he is offering a couple theses that we can look at The first one is that, he says, in the history of Western art, when you have a text that has elements of text and picture, one or the other is dominant. Either the text is Mm. clarifying the image or the image is dominant over the text, and Magritte ruins that. Yep. So he uses the, uh, the calligram as an example. A very obvious example that I think is pretty easy to understand. Like the, uh, you know, calligram is the poem writing of some sort that the way the text is laid out makes the shape of what it's describing. So, like, imagine a, a really terrible poem called I'm going to call it "Birds" by Chris Newman. It's just birds, 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 and the text is in the shape of a flying bird. That would be a calligram. calligram. I had to look up that word, actually. Even though we've seen so many of them, I actually I still had not. to look it up. Me too. I, he, great footnotes. I liked that it was right in the back. It was and beautiful, we and, we, and they give examples. Um, we're reading this from the book titled This Is Not a Pipe by Michel Foucault, and uh, I highly recommend following along or reading on this one first. The other uh, argument he makes is much more, dare I say, complicated but it's only complicated because of the limits of the english language yeah maybe (laughs) he says resemblance is not similitude at which point i of course went yes it is (laughs) (laughs) but resemblance is not similitude in the sense that in a 19th century naturalistic painting or at least representational painting when a person paints a bowl of fruit outside of the painting there is a real object existing a referent called a bowl of fruit whereas in similitude everything is internal there is a play of difference between what the object signifies itself to be what it's going to become in the painting and the fact that it is more open there is not this external reference. I thought of it as more fluid. It's a, mm. um, 
like you can't pin it down as well. Like I yeah, I, that's why I really like the uh, the bird painting and the way uh, Foucault you know described that one. I I thought was solid. Like that's that's where I was like, all right, I get I get where he's coming from. Yeah. With the resemblance versus similitude argument. So this painting, um, it's uh, two, the natural graces in English. Uh, oh, yeah. Les graces naturales. I, I can't he did pretty French. good, actually. Yeah, nice job, um, Preston. So it's these birds that are also leaves. Yeah. And uh, Foucault describes, like, the uh, the similitude involved with this is, are the birds flying away, like, are the plants becoming birds and flying away? Are the birds becoming plants and becoming rooted? Yeah, it increases an incredible amount of uh, tension. Yes. Right? Right? But when, when you have a contradiction or at least a thing that's supposedly feels contradictory when we watch it right yes um i uh the thing that i liked a lot about the way that foucault describes these paintings is um they kind of force you to think about the painting essentially to like that you know it's not just something you can look at like ah yes nice landscape oh yeah that's the great form, great brush strokes, that kind of stuff. No. You you have to think about him. Like, this is not a pipe is fantastic because you look at it and you're like, well, yeah, but but that is a pipe. And then Foucault does this great thing where he goes, first you look at it and you see, you know, this is not a pipe, and you look and you go, this is a pipe, and then he very clearly says and then you think well yeah i mean i guess it's a fucking it, image of a it's pipe. a painting <laughs> of a pie all right and and you roll your eyes but what's beautiful is that he says that that's not where that's not where that's it stopped because it. if it was where it stopped i think what he's implying is that it would be bad art you know it'd be the copies it'd be the sort of like it would be the, yeah copies of the painting yes um oh but, wait hold on wait really quick uh, I found a, a quote for everyone that tells us about resemblance versus similitude. Oh, yes. Resemblance predicates itself upon a model it must return to and reveal. Similitude circulates the simulacrum as an indefinite and reversible relation of the similar to the similar. And in a sense, that obviously is a lot of word jargon, but what we're really talking about here is the idea that when something is signified, or when we have a signifier in our mind, it's pointing towards some referent, some outside object or a mm. signified, but it not it doesn't have to reach the referent. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't reach it. And I, I think he talks about how, you know, Magritte is a master of just, hi-ya! He kind of chops that that final line because you're you're initial indications are not you know the oh, the, the signif signifier the so signifier is the thing that points to the signified yes, and the like reference is the real object yeah so the uh, he does a good job of obscuring the referent I guess um, because he I don't know 
breaks rules? Yeah, it's almost like the charm of Magritte is created through multiplying tensions mm. and not through alleviating tensions. Like, like that was sort of... In the, in the book, he talks about Clay and says Clay's doing something different. Um, now, I am not an art critic, and I know very little about Clay, but Clay has these paintings where there's floating bits of language attached to other objects, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. But he says it's fundamentally different because it's not, it's not that um, we have a supposedly fully formed object. We have sort of the trash bin of objects used to create new objects. Mm. That might be my own thought and not Foucault's. But Magritte is not destroying objects in that way. Like, he's... And in fact, he's so not destroying objects, on page one he's saying they're, they're almost cartoonishly depicted as, like, schoolboy drawings. Yes! Right? And the writing, the yeah. writing is... I mean, which he expands in the second one by actually putting it on what looks like a blackboard. You know, the... The easel and everything. The second one with our imitation pipe yeah. up above it. So my my reading of that, my my uh, viewing of the second pipe painting with the two pipes is that he's offering tensions because it's almost like you could take a reading of the first painting and say, ah, yes, the real pipe is the idealized image of a pipe I have in my brain. And he goes, no, no, no. I can depict that too. <laughs> Here is the idealized version of a pipe in my painting, so you can't have that. Ugh. The va what you, uh, Foucault uses the word vaporous a couple times when referring to that pipe, if I remember right. Yes. It's, uh, you know, floating above the teacher's head. I love the, uh, the analogy when he talks about um, the teacher who goes into the classroom and there's the picture of the pipe on it. And he's like, all right, class, quiet. This is n not a pipe. <laughs> and and uh, proceeds to try and argue this as the pipe slowly forms above his head and the children all laugh at him. Yeah, you know, you know what that is literally a scene out of? It's not literally, it's, it's, it's slightly different, but it reminds me of Alice in Wonderland when, like, someone, if I remember right, someone's describing the Cheshire Cat, and, like, the cat... Oh, appears. yes! Is that something, is that in that film? What, yeah, what it's, happens? uh, in the... The, the animated, animated one. Yeah. yeah, so... Alice is trying to defend herself to the Red Queen. Right. After, you know, she's gonna murder those poor cards. Right, yeah. Painting the roses red. Uh, and she's telling him, you know, she's trying to find the cat so she can get home. And she's like, what cat? And, or is it after the croquet match? It's and the cat, the like, appears match. on, like, the back of she, her? With the... She's, uh, sabotaging, the cat sabotaging the, the croquet match. And Alice is like, it wasn't me, it was the cat. And she's like, what cat? The, the Cheshire cat. Right the behind you. tail. And this tail appears. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as, as... As he's described, he slowly appears behind, behind the queen, but the queen can't see the floating cat. That's that's a little different, but it's pretty close. It's, to the it's pretty close. Also, one of the things in that scene, I, what I got is Foucault 
I, I just I don't know how to else to I can't describe this in theory terms. I just like him as a as like a person like that. Like a lot of this does delve into theory, but that scene is just pure whimsy. He was just right? having He's just fun fucking around. Yes. Right? There's no like yes. There's no like theoretical basis for that scene in a lot of sense. And I, I I definitely feel like there were a few spots where he's just kind of like writing down his fun ideas he had while going into this stuff. Which leads me to, now that we've kind of summarized the main things, and we're going to return to all of these, of course, but for the audience who's like, okay, what other arguments are there? That's it. Yeah. The rest of the, it's it's a descriptive analysis of the painting, which, which is um, really adeptly done, I think. Really... <sighs> It was it accorded with my experience of viewing the painting, uncannily so I would oh. say. And I, I love that. Um, not only do we do that one painting, yeah, we get little analysis of a bunch of other ones that he does that are really great. And I think I know why he started with the pipe. My my friend Ray was like, "Oh, that's like my least favorite Magritte painting." And I was like, yeah, I think I can I can see why that's not like considered Magritte's favorite, like best painting maybe. But I think that why Foucault chose it, at least in part, is because everything's there. Yeah. Like of all the other paintings, it's all in there. Yes. Yeah. I I think it's the uh the flagship. It's like this is this is kind of all the stuff that's going on. I, I that's at least why I think that, you know, he spent so much time on that one. Yeah. Because as he uses that as the, like, launching point to describe, like, how he views all this other stuff from Magritte. Yeah. I really liked his analysis of, um, which one was it here? Ah, um, the transfer. Which page? Um, that is back on the plates. It's number 23, plate number 23. It's weird I have that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I got mine from the library, and somebody wrote in all the translations for the paintings. Which leads us actually to a really interesting <laughs> topic. First of all, this painting's great. It shows a man silhouetted by... It's, a, it's the back view of a man... And there's clouds in the background, and the other side of the painting is the silhouette of a man, but the clouds occupy the silhouette instead of a black shape. And instead the background becomes a curtain. Yes. And that that painting actually more quickly articulates to me the difference between resemblance versus similitude. Because he talks about similitude as being this sort of copying ability. That you can, because there's so many attributes that and, and qualities that one could uh, latch onto that you could easily see this painting as a triptych instead of a dip, diptych. That's two, right? Not, I, I don't know anything about painting, I'm sorry. Uh, you could see it as a triptych. You could see a third man, a fourth man, a fifth man. It could go on, and you would never have to refer externally to an actually existing bowl of fruit, so to speak, mm. from earlier, right? It could just it, The play could just keep going, which is why Magritte is a painter of playing for me oh. I mean, it's just playful for me. so my favorite part of this painting mm -hmm. which i think ties very well into this this idea of how far it can go yeah is i love that the little space that this man's arm occupies on the curtain if you look over at the silhouette cutout 
what curtain would be there is sitting on the side of the silhouette. Oh my gosh. That's brilliant. And I also reached the limits of what we can describe to the audience. You kind of just have to go look at the painting. You have to go look at the painting. It's perfect. It's it's perfect. And it it's also just fun. And you get a play of signifiers instead of trying to represent a bowl of fruit or even to say something essential about what fruitness is. Yeah. You know, you're not you're not doing this as on bringing out certain colors where those colors are in there but more highlighted in in a sort of phenomenological sense. No, what what happens is is you get disconnects that form the continuities, right? Mm. So the the break in the arm is a break, but it it links up with the first man. And so you get difference produced in that way which is totally different from pre-surrealist uh, thinking. Mm. To me. I mean, again, I, I, uh, I don't know an incredible amount of painting, but I'm just going to say that that would be my guess. At least that would be in line with Foucault. So, another fun thing about you know, a little resemblance, similitude. Yeah. The backwards-facing man in the bowler hat. This, uh, the painting we were talking about is not his only appearance. No. It's, he's like the most, he's like... Shows up all the time. He's all over in Magritte's. All over. You know. So another one of my favorites they did here, the, uh... Oof. I'm gonna murder this. Personnage marchant vers la horizon. Thank you, Preston. Oh, it's the one with all the, uh... It has words in weird pebble-like objects slittered around with a man standing, facing away from you in the center. So, he's placed all the things where they should be, and I, I think Foucault describes them as, like, the shadows of these things in a certain light, but they're labeled with what they're supposed to be, and they're in the right place for a painting. Like, if you were to do a painting, yes, the horse would go there. Right. That is the horizon back there. That is where you'd put the sun. Oh, yeah, a cloud would go there. And, you know, our uh, our armchair there. But these words don't point at the objects we expect. They're blobs. Yeah, it's obscured by the fact that the word is like declaring its own space, maybe? Like, the word in the painting is not part of the ensemble. Mm. You know, it's almost referring back to your thinking. You say, I see that, that's the horizon, and the blob is suddenly thrown on to the canvas, labeled horizon. Yep. Which is great. Oh, man, where's the spot where you talk? Ah. Let's see. Yes. So. Ah, the painting is the converse of a rebus. That chain of shapes so easily recognized as to be immediately identifiable. It's mere formulation enjoying the articulation of a sentence whose meaning has nothing to do with the figures actually seen there. Yeah. So he's he's flipped this uh, mm-hmm. this concept of like the instantly recognizable in an image and instead used the words without the image it's supposed to highlight. Yeah. But he still kept him in the right place. He kept him in the right place. 
I think one of the things Magritte does that Foucault... Foucault does a very honest reading of Magritte. He's not doing what, in theory, is called a hermeneutics of suspicion. And this is... Uh, the two lenses that are most commonly put into that would be Marxism and Freudianism. So, like, in Marxism, you'd be looking at the painting to try and figure out some sort of power relationship or like mm. positioning in the bourgeoisie or, or something like that and but a hermeneutic a her, excuse me a hermeneutics of suspicion is looking for something behind the text that might do violence to the text and Foucault is doing more of a like rudimentary descriptive analysis when he's talking directly which I, I like um, because if you think about it there's a great painting by Magritte I forget the name of it but it has a, a train engine coming out of a family hearth. And it's a great painting. But a Freudian would say, what? Can you guess? Oh, that's got to have something to do with the phallus. Yeah, it's the penis, right? Yeah, it's the penis the, coming the, out the of the family home. Definitely a, a penis, right? <laughs> Whereas Foucault would probably roll his eyes and go, no, it's, it, it has to be a train because that's how fucking Magritte works, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't... Like, you can say it's a phallus, and, and, and Magritte might even be aware of that reading, but even so, I think Magritte resists hermeneutics of suspicion because he's including your thoughts of the work in the work themselves. Ah, uh, and I like that... Like how he redid the pipe picture... Like we were talking about before, how yeah. it's like, ha no, I've got that one too. No, it's like, you might be thinking of this thing, and you might think that's an answer, but we artists, we're not here to give you answers. I'm just here to give you more confusion that's interesting, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Or it's, sorry, confusion isn't even the right word, because I don't think confusion and Magritte go together. It's more puzzlement? Puzzlement? Play? Or, or I don't know, uh, because it's just such direct contradictions. Yes. Um, this is not a pipe when you have a pipe the painting would be ruined if it said this is not a painting like if, if the painting said this is not a painting and had a picture of a pipe then we'd go ah but it is a pipe ah uh, and yeah, I like actually I, uh... it's weird I landed on that one because I feel like that one's actually kind of interesting <laughs> Yeah, this is not that's... a painting is maybe the climax of that type of thinking actually <laughs> it's like it's like if, if uh before the podcast preston said goes you begin with this is not a podcast <laughs> <laughs> i i uh like the biggest thing that i liked about the great stuff and you know the way that foucault described it is the, like forced examination it makes you curious because you're not getting the answers out of the things you're looking for on there. Mm. And this is not a pipe, especially the first thing we often do when we look at painting is, ah, yes, let's, uh, let's see how it has been labeled. Ah, ah, yes. And this one, you read it and go, well, okay. This, this is not a pipe. Well, I agree. I also think that the... The titles add fun. Magritte is definitely a thinker, and I, I, I almost wonder, um, 
my again, but back to my friend Ray. He he prefers Dolly over Magritte, and he talks about the techniques of the painting and how how great Dolly's colors and 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 ensemble, all all this stuff that's in Dolly are great. What I think about I think Magritte, Magritte is that Magritte cares about language, right? Yes. Like, or something maybe about language. So or... I, I that's that was kind of the uh, one of the connections that I made on like. Of all these different artists, you know, yeah. were why Magritte, and I, I feel like it is a big part of language and um, how uh, often like word. Like, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this. Foucault's much better at it, but the the way that like words can eventually just distort like the actual thing they're describing at the end yeah um like if you described an elephant as a quadruped of unusually large size <laughs> you would go well yeah okay an elephant i guess <laughs> but um like and even the uh the letters in it yeah. that uh, Foucault makes a point to talk about how these letters are not written. They're painted. The the writing here. Yeah, he didn't uh, staple it on afterward, which would be more of what like a postmodern artist would do. Is they, would, they would do a different medium, I mean, I'm guessing, over the top of it. But these are part of the title. I mean, if you look at it in figure three, this is not a pipe is the caption, I'm going to call it caption, of the painting, but it's also the title. Mm. But, you know, for the second version of the painting, he, he changes the title. He doesn't yeah. say another paint, another non-pipe. He nope. says what? Les deux mystères. The and two that's mysteries. the two mysteries. Yeah, and, and suddenly... What he's doing, and this is why I think Foucault is really adept at reading Magritte as a thinker, is he says that we're not cutting down mysteries, we're adding mysteries. Mm. Because what he's implying is that whatever you thought was an answer to the first painting was actually the first mystery. So he sort of retroactively says whatever your answer to the reading was of the first one was actually wrong you jumped to understand too quickly. This is, this is just the end of Quantum Leap every time. He's hoping to jump home, but nope, he's got to do another mission. Just more mysteries to go. Just more mysteries. Just more mysteries. You thought you had it this time. There's more mysteries. So, I have a question for you, Preston, and I don't know if there's an answer to this, so this might be the hardest question I've ever asked you. Oh, Lord. What would be the third iteration so we have iteration number one, number two. If Magritte said, I'm going to make a third one, what would he do? Full disclosure, I, I don't know. I, um, so, before, before I, uh, you know, go for that. I'm curious about one thing. Yeah, yeah. The uh, woman painted on a bottle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Is this a painting or is that actually a woman painted on a bottle? I believe it is a woman painted on a bottle. It's a, I think it's a, a actual bottle. I think there were a couple. Uh, on my honeymoon, actually, I saw the Magritte exhibit when it was in San Francisco. And if I remember right, there were actual bottles with paintings on them. So, the first thing I'm wondering is, since we've only seen him do, like, the, the duplication, because he does it in this other painting with, like, the kids playing, playing soccer, and then under the, like, next to the fence, there's, like, the smaller scale version of it. Oh, yeah, love that one. Um, so, I would guess he would likely keep this yeah this this would still exist and we we've got to come out a little bit farther here what i don't know would he paint it on a pipe just just on the side of a pipe yeah like we're reaching a sort of um baudrillard simulacra of a simulacra type thing but where it's like <laughs> not one of these pipes like it's yeah it's it's painted on a on like a big sewer pipe like a two by four yeah well yeah like a like a like a sewer pipe like yeah. a, like a big pipe yeah like a tube kind of pipe he's, he's painted it on on the side of a like giant 10 foot wide pipe and it says this is not a pipe so, I like that, because it, it would leave the the uh, reading of the... Well, and sorry, it would leave the medium. We'd be in a different medium at that point, right? We'd leave painting to a more physical object. Right, and this is why I was wondering. I was like, has he done that? Is that something he'd do? That's and it the, is. The water bottle... The, the, the bottle one, the woman on the bottle. So I was like, I don't know, maybe he puts it on a, on a pipe. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Great job. I'm going to give you an amazing props. Yeah. I, could, I could not come up with one. I was thinking about it last night when I finished it. And I was like, well, what would be the third pipe? And I was picturing, like, all sorts of, like, views of the... What I was, what I was picturing is, like, it's just a pipe turned facing you. Oh. So it doesn't look like a pipe and it says this is not a pipe. But then I was like, no, that wouldn't be fun because it would just be the wrong viewpoint on a pipe like we wouldn't and he would never do that because he always gives you the object most clearly presented mm. so okay so i have another um so we have two more quick things to talk about before we end our probably shorter episode for the week oh yeah um he in chapter three he makes this great argument about how in the history of art as i said Either the text is ruled by the image, um, or else the image is ruled by the text. And I was wondering if in media today we wanted to talk about a couple and see and see Ooh. his power relation between image versus text, like which one is serving which. So, okay, so here's my example, my question. Let's say that someone is posting on Twitter, and they say like. I had a great time in San Fran like San Francisco. And they post a picture of San Francisco. I don't know if you can even post images on Twitter. Twitter is now X, 
so I'm thinking Twitter circa 2012, <laughs> but like whatever, you know, you know, normal Twitter, whatever that was. Um, in that formula, do you think the text is serving the image as a caption or do you think the image is, you know, which, which one is dominant? Ooh. So based upon the way I think a lot of us tend to consume social media, I think the picture becomes the dominant. Yeah. Yeah, because you see that they, you, you assume they were there without having read it. Boom. And unless there's something traumatic in the picture, the, the, you get what you need to know out of the, out of the picture, right? It's them, you know, X person with friend at Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Like, all right, sweet. You're in San Francisco. I assume you had a good time because you're posting about it and you're posting a picture. I probably don't need to read your your caption there. Which is where so I've I'm working on an, on a couple essays about what I'm calling free spaces, which Derrida bases like so much of his writing on this idea, which is okay. So if you have a binary where one is in the not minority, but, you know, non-dominant position, there's a certain angle you can take in which point you could say that the text in that example is more free. So, so my example that I always give with this is album covers. So in albums, we always retroactively make sense of the album cover after having had listened to the album mm. to such a degree that even if we see an album cover that's just deeply incomprehensible, or even an absence, like Yeezus, where it was no album cover by Ye. Um, I'm saying R.I.P. to Ye, because I don't listen to his music anymore. Um, whatever the album cover is, we'll just retroactively make sense of it. We may think it's bad or good or didn't serve the purpose, but it's fundamentally like intelligible because it is always auxiliary or serving or you know what they call paratext to the body which is the the music mm. the same thing applies to like rap skits you know like the oh. far side and like you know de la soul gave these ridiculous skits right and the reason why is because they realize they're a free space they're they're not dominant they're subservient in a weird way to the songs and so i wonder applying that here if if you could post the text and you could really say whatever you wanted. So <laughs> you, you post this, this lovely picture or a couple of pictures of you just doing typical things in San Francisco, a couple of golden gate bridge, you know, the, the, the windy street. Yeah. And then you just sneak in the middle of the text. Murdered a homeless guy in San Francisco. Had a great time. It was awesome. <laughs> we got home safe. And yeah. see how many people are like, did you say you murdered, like, murdered someone? Like, yeah. how long does <laughs> how that long go does before someone reads your subtext to the pictures? Yeah, or like a, like a fucking, you could say, um... I'm so glad I got to see San Francisco for the last time. Unfortunately, the apocalypse is coming tomorrow because of whatever religion they're a part of. 
And like again, I think you'd have the same thing where because the we just on social media are so image based that it would be secondary, so secondary that you may miss the text. Definitely. So you could like smuggle in stupid jokes, or you could you could smuggle in a lot because it's so much more free, because the image is the dominant presentation. Now I want to try this. Yeah. Like post all these great pictures of you know, you and Anna together. Like I just love my partner so much. I had to murder them. See, see how long it takes for somebody to be like. Wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. It's just all these great pictures of you guys doing stuff, and then you just kind of sneak that in as a caption on one of them. Yeah. I think I think that... So if we apply that to Magritte, though, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that Magritte doesn't have free spaces? Or the free spaces maybe are the title? Because like think about it, if if the if if the text and the image are now on the same leveled playing field where they're both equally relevant, then you lose the you lose the play of being subservient, and that function is then relegated to the title, and then you get his great titles. So maybe I guess I guess my argument, if I ever was to write it down, would be that the titles are the free spaces. Oof. That's pretty good. I like that. Because I... the titles are wild, right? The titles I... do a lot in McGree. Okay, one of my favorite titles that he has yeah. is the, um, the like, painting set up of, on an easel in front of a window, and the painting is, like, the exact depiction of the, you know, the stuff out there. And the title is The Human Condition. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what? And and I mean, I mean not, you know, like but but it demands you to think, but also before we got to whatever his title was, there is a free play there where he could have named it anything to get you thinking because we are going to consider the painting whatever's in that frame is the body. And anything outside of that's paratext. Anything. The next page is another one of my favorites. This, uh, a lovely painting of a hedge, and the hedge is overtaking it. So obviously he named it The Waterfall. <laughs> yeah, which, that one is, is I, I don't actually know if I understand that one, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> but, but you realize, even in even in not understanding it, there's a sort of free space there because we cannot understand it and it will never matter towards the painting's criticism. Mm. It doesn't matter. Oh, that's a silly title. Who cares? Doesn't matter. It's almost like in that type of paratech situation, we count the hits and disregard the misses. Mm. Where it's like, if a, what's the title of the next one? I don't know. I only have it in French. Do you have it in English? Oh, uh, I do. Telescope. Oh, it's great. So this one really does add something because it's a painting of a window in a darkened room and in the window panes you see blue sky with clouds but the window is ajar and what's actually outside is just pure black. And so telescope is deeply evocative, right? But he could do whatever. He could have named it um, 
uh, spring frogs. Mm. And we would have had a completely, we would have retroactively made sense of that title, or we would have not counted it. So here is the tiny little detail that makes the that telescope one, um, you know, just so great and not, oh, they just painted clouds on, on the windows. That opened one, if you look at the top corner of it, he's implying that it's clear. You can see the molding behind it. So there's the implication that the window is clear, but this is also the one that's ajar on pitch black behind it. Brilliant. <laughs> it's so cool. Preston, I gotta give it to you. You're a very adept reader of Magritte paintings. You're very good at seeing where things should line up or don't line up logically, I gotta say. Um, and it's, it's very fun to read Magritte paintings with you. We'll, we'll have to do more <laughs> more painting reading in the future. No kidding. This is the, our second dive into actually, like, looking at paintings. And, you know, I've, I've had fun on both of them. It's been a good time. It's been a good time. Well, I know it's very short, but Foucault didn't offer much. He offered a lot of fun analyses and a lot of great stuff, but um, I don't have anything I disagree with because the theses were very modest, I think, actually. I mean, I... This is, you know, a, a pretty far step from the the Haraway that we read at the beginning there. You know, <laughs> it's like the was... opposite of a manifesto, it, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, I, I mean, it was, a, it was a fun read, and it's, you know, definitely served to, like, open my eyes a little bit more towards actually looking at paintings, which I think was kind of a... One of Magritte's points there is, you know, it it just serves to make it a lot more interesting because it's. Ooh, how do you describe this? Because it's not just nonsense, no. but it also doesn't necessarily have like this deeper kernel of truth to it. That if you can figure it out, there it is. You found out the true meaning behind it. No, what what you get is just. The second mystery. Yes. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I liked how elusive his stuff is, and it was, I don't know, it was fun. It was fun. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. Join us next time. We are going to be reading something deeply different. We will be reading Freud's essay on. Oh my gosh, I forget the name. It's a. It's a when a fetishism. Mm, and is, it's going to be probably our first one in which you will see us both. Deeply bashing a theorist. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this one. I think it's going to be a good time. Alrighty. Until next time. <laughs>